The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. I like questions, but I have a question for you. Questions are important, by the way, because when I, when I read about reasons that people end up leaving church, a big one is, I didn't get my questions answered. I don't want that to ever be true. We want to always invite your questions. So here's a question for you. Who would you say is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? You're probably thinking Elijah, uh, maybe Jeremiah, Moses, Isaiah. But what would be your response if I were to say that the most important prophet in the Old Testament is John the Baptist? You'd probably say, uh, Pastor Brian, John the Baptist is in the New Testament, not the Old. And yes, that's true. He's mentioned, he's, he's recorded in the pages Of the book called the New Testament, but in terms of redemptive history, ah, it's a trick question, isn't it? In terms of redemptive history, John the Baptist belongs to the period of the Old Testament. Within the view of redemptive history, all of the procedures of the Old Covenant, they're still in place during the time of John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus said that the law and the prophets rule until John. And that little word until means up to and including John. Jesus also said that of all those born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So there, don't don't argue with me, argue with Jesus on that one. None greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he also said, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. And what Jesus means by this is that John belongs to that period of preparation for the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. And that anyone who lives in on this side, within the kingdom of God, that we see being established in the book of Acts, that person enjoys a greater state of blessing. A greater state of blessing than any of the characters in the Old Testament. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, there will be an ultimate realization of Christ's kingdom to come. But we're also praying for something now. We're praying, Lord, please use me, use us, use your church to spread your gospel to all peoples, all nations, because you have all authority, not only in heaven, but on earth as well. And because of this, we go and make disciples. This is what we see in Acts, and it's the kingdom of which we are a part. Christ ascended as the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is his kingdom and we have a calling. It's a new era. It's not yet complete. There's a lot of work to be done. It's his kingdom and we are his subjects. Jesus works through his church and each believer is given given gifts and areas of influence, and a calling to make disciples. So if you're a believer in Jesus, don't think that, well, that's someone else's. That's, that's their job. No, God is sovereign, and you are exactly where you're at for a purpose. He's placed you there to be an influence, to be a witness in small and great ways. It's where God has you. This is what we see in Acts. It's the kingdom of which we are a part. Christ ascended as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we go through the book of Acts, 
something we should see and appreciate, is that these are, these people that we see in, in Acts, they're our brothers and sisters. We're a part of the kingdom because, well, they obeyed Jesus. They went out to the nations making disciples who then made disciples who then made disciples who and so now we believe as a result of their work we're a part of this okay i'm going to say it maybe i'll take it back if we ever do the apostles creed again we are a part of this holy catholic church and by catholic of course i mean universal And the beauty of that word, the beauty of that word is we're connected to not just each other at Bear Creek Church, not just believers today around the globe, but to believers throughout history. These people that we read about in Acts. So I wanted to make this distinction between the old and the new, because something else we see in the book of Acts, it's this overlap. An overlap between these two eras. It's a unique time, and we need to recognize that. And that will prevent us from drawing wrong conclusions about some of the things that we see in Acts. There's this overlap between these two eras, this unique time. The temple in Jerusalem... During this time, it was still there. And uh, what's the main purpose of the temple? It had to do with animal sacrifices. Sacrifices that, that were intended to point to the ultimate and final sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, who would atone for our sins. So this is still going on. There's an overlap, right? Jesus has come, atoned for our sins, but the temple's still there. These things are still going on. During this time in Acts, most Jews are still living under that old covenant, even though the new has already come. John the Baptist was recorded in our New Testaments, but he died before the new covenant was inaugurated. And Jesus inaugurated it in the upper room on the night before his death. Speaking of the new covenant in his blood, words that we hear when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then this new covenant was ratified the next day as his blood was actually shed on the cross for us. It was the beginning of a new age, a new covenant. And yet the old still being lived out. And this is the significance of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, marking the end of the old. But until then, there was this unusual overlap. The temple was still there. The judgment and destruction had not yet occurred. And the new was established through Jesus. And I mention this because, well, I think it helps us understand these disciples that we're going to read about in Acts 19. In Acts 19, Luke gives us, he gives us several scenes. Scenes that show how the gospel impacted Ephesus and the, and the surrounding region, Asia Minor. In each of these scenes, there's a conflict going on. And the first one is a conflict that involves John the Baptist, the old And their lack of knowledge concerning the beginning of the new. This overlap. So let's read. I'm going to work, we're going to work our way through chapter 19, through most of it. So we're just going to take it a chunk at a time. So follow along, uh, beginning verse 1 through verse 7, this first scene. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Interesting, huh? Now, if you imagine this scene, I, I think it's obvious that, that Luke isn't just... That Luke is... Well, he's just giving us the highlights, right? The highlights of this conversation. It's not as if Paul just wanders up to some men and begins by saying, Hello, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, the impression we get is that there was already a discussion about their faith, about what they believed. And something they said made Paul wonder about the covenant they were under. That's why he asks about the Holy Spirit. Because at the beginning of this of the new covenant, what have we seen in Acts? Well, God has made it really clear that something new was happening. And he communicates this through signs and wonders brought about when the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. So there's the connection. It's not something that we should, I would argue, okay, here's another thing important about understanding this overlap of time period, the beginning of something new, uh, uh, fulfillment of Joel 2's prophecy concerning these signs and wonders. God's saying, this is the beginning. This is my work in the new covenant. So we shouldn't expect Pentecostal experiences today because we're not living at the start of a new covenant. God has already made it known to to the various people groups. And that's what we see in Acts, different people groups. So Paul began his, his third and last missionary journey. Remember, we ended that last week. And he has left the church at Antioch again. He's traveled inland this time not prevented by the Holy Spirit going into Asia Minor. He travels inland, comes back to Ephesus. Remember, he, he stopped there for a short time and they wanted him to stay. And he says, hopefully I'll come back. Lord willing, I'll, I'll come back to you. Well, he's come back. And this really becomes the new teaching headquarters. Antioch was the place, but he stays there for, for a few years. He's, he teaches there probably a total of around three years that he's in Ephesus, or that's the headquarters. So, this first scene that Luke gives us, I'll call it a conflict of knowledge, or lack thereof. It's a strange dialogue. And the first question that, that, that comes to mind is, if they don't even know about the Holy Spirit... How could they really be disciples? And what did they actually believe? Now, if this were to happen in our day, again, here's the differences between our times. If this were to happen in our day, if you came across some people, struck up a religious conversation, and they started talking about being disciples of John the Baptist, that they received his baptism and and they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, I think you'd probably conclude that they're not Christians. <laughs> I don't know what they are. This is kind of weird. They're not believers. But in this case, I actually think these particular disciples were saved. It's interesting reading opinions on this. No help whatsoever. Half the people are like, Assuming they're Christians, the other half assuming they're not. I think these guys are Christians. Well, not They're saved. That's probably a better way to put it. Here's the difference. They lived in a different time. A unique time when the old and the new overlapped. With this in mind, here's another question for you. Here's another question for you. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Have you ever thought about that? We've had a lot of bad teaching over the years through dispensationalism that would say, well, by obeying the law. No. No. 
It wasn't through obedience to the law that anyone was saved because no one keeps the law. The law shows us our sin and our need of a Savior. Well, was it because these people of old, they were God's chosen people in covenant with him? Not necessarily, no. That's not what saved them. Maybe you're thinking, what does this have to do with these particular men, Pastor Brian? They're not living in the Old Testament. They're living in the New. Ah. But are they? Remember, they're disciples of John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet. Could it be that they've prepared for the Messiah by receiving John's baptism of repentance? Maybe they they heard this from a disciple of John's. Maybe they heard it... From him, Maybe they got baptized and then returned home before seeing John point directly to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. Maybe they've been hanging out in Ephesus, still looking, waiting in faith for the Messiah to come, even though Jesus has already come. John's baptism is not to be confused with the new covenant. No, it was a message directed at Jews, really offensive to Jews who consider themselves clean. It was a message of repentance because the Messiah was at hand. Their Savior was at the door. And John was saying, you're not ready. John's message was, you're still unclean, and so you need to undergo the rite of cleansing in order to prepare yourself for the coming king. So again, I ask, how were the people in the Old Testament saved? Answer is, same as us. Faith. Faith in the promise of God's Messiah. Back in Genesis 3, God made a promise that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. This was the beginning. The beginning of God revealing all throughout redemptive history his promise to deal with the sin that first entered into his creation through Adam. We're given more and more details concerning this promised Messiah who would save all who, who looked to him in faith. All of these pictures. Remember the weird bronze serpent thing? Look, it's a picture of Jesus who became a curse for us. All of these pictures. It's wonderful. It's faith. Believing in the promise of God. Paul teaches this truth in Romans 4, pointing out that Scripture tells us in Genesis 15 that that Abraham wasn't justified by works, but instead he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the saints of old believed. They looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah, And we look back to Jesus, who is the Messiah that actually did come and defeat sin and death. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And they, the Old Testament says, they were saved by grace through faith in God's promise of Jesus. Same thing. Different perspective. Now think of these disciples as being stuck in the middle. It's like they're in some weird time warp, believing or having faith in the one John pointed them to without seeing the reality of it. I think that's what's going on here. It's really a a very unique situation that causes us to, to think through our theology. Here's another question that comes to mind. Love questions. Can anyone be saved apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit? If salvation is by God's grace, then isn't the work of His grace done by the Holy Spirit who who gives us the gift of faith, the eyes to see and believe in God's promise? And if that's true, then 
How can these men say, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit? Paul's initial question involves the Holy Spirit, not because of, not because of their faith, but because of, again, what's going on here? It's because of the signs and wonders that are associated with a people believing under the new covenant. That's the context in which he asked this. So remember, Pentecost was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2, being one of them, regarding the, the difference between believers under the old covenant and believers under the new. Peter made this connection in his sermon at Pentecost, saying, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. That's key. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Those days had come. And the Holy Spirit was making it known, authenticating the new covenant through miraculous gifts. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is this, this authenticating sign being given to various people groups. Right? Because that was a big deal too, right? Is it just the Jews? No. This is the beginning of something new. The new covenant is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, saying that he would be the father of many nations. And what do we see in Acts? Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2 is the work of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Acts 8, we see a Pentecostal sign among Samaritans. In Acts 10, it's the, it's the home of Cornelius and the God-fearers. Now in chapter 19, it's another authenticating work of the Spirit as these believers are brought from the old into the new. It's a sign that authenticates the promise of God's gospel, which goes beyond Jerusalem, empowering his people to take it to the ends of the earth. Paul, Paul assumes this when he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He was thinking in terms of the new covenant or trying to discern this. But then he discerns that they hadn't put all the pieces together yet. So let's think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Getting back to that question of how we believe. Salvation has always been a gift of God's grace. It's always been through faith. And the one to give us faith, to open our eyes so that we might believe this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said... That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Those who are spiritually dead, in any time in redemptive history, that's the case, right? That's the problem. Those who are spiritually dead need to be regenerated. They need to be born of the Spirit. So yes, every Old Testament saint believed because of this work of the Holy Spirit. But under the Old Covenant, only some were filled. Only some were equipped by the Spirit. This is, what, this is one of the differences that we see in the New Covenant. Not just, you know, in the Old Testament, the people who were filled temporarily at times, the anointing, it's priests. It's prophets, it's, it's men, typically, it's artists for the building of the temple or decorating the tabernacle. But everyone, but now everyone, young and old, men and women, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's a big difference. 
So these disciples may have believed because of the Spirit's work of regeneration, but they wouldn't necessarily know him until he indwells them. They believed. But now through the leading of Paul, they enter into a new covenant, receiving the sign of Jesus' baptism and the resulting gift of the Holy Spirit who takes up a permanent residence inside of them. It's beautiful. It's, it's really unique. And so it's not something that we'd look at and build some doctrine today for. So that's one scene, one conflict being dealt with during this unique time in church history. A second scene is verses 8 through 10. And I'll call this a conflict with hard hearts. Let's read that. We read that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the second scene. This second scene is a conflict with hard hearts. Paul's preaching about the kingdom of God, the gospel, what Jesus inaugurated and ratified. He's... He's going to their scriptures in the synagogue, going to their scriptures. He's reasoning with them. He's he's making persuasive arguments. And unlike the 12 men in the first scene, after three months of this, the Jews in the synagogue finally become so stubborn. Word being used here is same used to describe Pharaoh. Hard-hearted, stubborn, defiant. So much so that they became verbally abusive. They attacked the way, the Christian faith. It's the last time we see Paul in a synagogue. He leaves, taking those who, who did believe with him. And he finds a new place to teach. In two verses... Luke basically summarizes the main teaching ministry of Paul. Over two years, he taught every day in the hall of Tyrannus. And this ministry was was hugely successful. As we read that all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. His reputation spread. And the people came from everywhere to... To hear Paul teach. And those who sat under his teaching likely went out and planted churches throughout the region. Now most think of think that the hall of Tyrannus was either, was either some building owned by a guy named Tyrannus. Or a kind of school where he taught. And if you're using the ESV or I'm not sure what translations this is in, but the ESV has a little footnote at the end of verse 9, and it indicates that that some manuscripts add that Paul taught from the 5th hour to the 10th hour, or it's 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So Paul, he's a tent maker, right? Everyone who does their work, they're doing it in the cool hours of the morning. So this is is Paul's routine for, for the next couple of years. He's doing his work, making tents, leather work, doing that in the morning, while Tyrannus is taking those cool uh, hours of the day to do his teaching, whatever he's doing. And really, it's a brilliant time for Paul. He takes, he takes the, the time after Tyrannus. He takes that 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. slot. Every day, five hours. And it's, it's a brilliant time slot to take because, well, everyone worked in the morning. And then had their afternoon break and a siesta. Someone said that more people slept at 1 p.m. than 1 a.m. in Ephesus. It's the hot hours of the day, so people didn't work. But 
people were also free. They were free to come and listen. And Paul apparently packed the place every day for two years. It was a it was a very strategic and successful move, but it came because of a it came because of a conflict, didn't it? It became it, it came about because of a conflict with hard hearts. And we just think, oh, in the sovereignty of God, look at this. In the sovereignty of God, look what happened instead. He's teaching there. What seems like a failure turns out to be the greatest time of Paul's teaching ministry. Okay, now speaking of of strategy, this hard-heartedness, it reminds me of what we're seeing in America today. Did you know that the last 25 years has been the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our nation? The last 25 years has been the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our nation. A term given to this is de-churching, which is defined as adult Americans who used to attend a congregation at least once a month or more and now attend less than once per year or never. This has happened over 25 years. Statistics show that 15% of all adult Americans have de-churched. 15%. That's 40 million people. 15 million of these leaving an evangelical church. So I think 25 million are probably Catholic. With some, when you read these statistics, with some... It's, it's a hard heart. They no longer believe. They've, they've deconstructed their faith. And they say that they're never going to come back. But here's an interesting statistic. Over half of the people who have de-churched are actively willing to return. The reasons that they give for leaving, it's interesting. The reasons they give for leaving leaving are, I moved. Which makes me think, you know, when when people move away from here, we should have a part of our ministry of finding a good church for them before they leave. Checking in with them as they're gone. Did you find a church? How are you doing? Because the main reason people leave the church is, I moved. Moving's hard. Life gets busy. Attending was inconvenient. Other priorities. Um, I didn't fit in was another reason. Some kind of suffering in their life. Church hurt. Pastor scandal. Not necessarily in, in that church, but just in general. This whole idea of the scandals that we see. These are, these are the reasons that people give for leaving. These are ones that are not a matter of a hard heart. It may be that they never were saved or had a shallow belief that leads some, uh, that needs some attention. It's like Paul spending three months reasoning with people and then they follow him after some become hard hearted. And it's good to read about the boldness of Paul because. We tend to be so irrationally afraid. Don't you think, when we read about the boldness of Paul, I just think, how irrational am I in my fear to engage with people? To reason with them? To share the gospel? And yet, and yet, what, what we can learn from these polls and statistics, for some, for most It may be as simple as saying, hey, would you like to go to church with me? And that's it. (laughs) So many many people just need a little nudge, a little reminder. Yeah, I'll go to church with you. Let's get lunch afterwards. Great. We're afraid of even this kind of simple invite. And yet, most, we're afraid, why? We're thinking, well, I don't want to wreck the relationship. Most say, even if the answer is, No thanks. 
that it doesn't have a negative impact on the relationship. In fact, it tends to be something positive because it, it shows that person that you care. The majority of reasons for leaving and returning have to do with relationships. And with some, they only need a nudge. With others, it, it's having them over for dinner. It's hospitality. Um, and then the others may take years of investing in deepening that relationship. I always think of uh, Rosaria Butterfield. And what a blessing. You know, here she had a very hard heart towards the church. And this sweet couple, this pastor, just had her over, showed hospitality, didn't push anything, just built a relationship. And here she is now. She's just a, a giant voice uh, in the church, in our, our culture. Paul had a strategy. He faced the conflict of some hard hearts, and he went in another direction. What, and it makes me think, what's ours? It may be as simple as just being mindful of inviting. A simple, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Which then leads to some friendships and hearing and seeing the gospel lived out in the church. So we've seen a conflict of knowledge and hearts. And now there's another scene beginning with verse 11. Let's read that. Acts 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Sound familiar? Televangelists, hey, 50 bucks, I'll send you this hanky. I guess that's where they get that from. Um... Their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This third conflict, it's obviously this spiritual battle going on. First of all, God is doing some amazing things. And once again, it's important that we understand the context of this specific period of time. Can God do miracles today? Of course he can. And he does. My family has experienced a truly miraculous healing. So um, even though I, I, I have things and opinions uh, concerning miraculous gifts and these kinds of things, I'm the last person to put God in a box and say that he can't do something. And generally speaking, here's a good rule for you. It's a bad idea to say God can't. But it's also important for us to rightly understand why God does these miraculous things in the Bible. There's a context Remember that the big miracles you see throughout, all throughout Scripture, they typically have to do with a prophet of God. The point of the miracles have to do with God communicating to the people, this is my prophet. Let me show you. So, these great miracles occur. 
This is my prophet is what he's saying. So you better listen to him because I'm going to speak through him. Miraculous signs and wonders have to do with that authority. That person's authority. They, they show that God has given that person authority to speak and act on his behalf. And of course, Jesus is that ultimate prophet, right? He is the word of God. And so, his various miracles, they point to the fact that he has God's authority to do what he does. And then we see this just continue on in the book of Acts because God's word is it's not yet complete, is it? The New Testament has not yet been written. We also see that there are miraculous signs and gifts given in fulfillment of Joel 2 and that the new covenant is in place. And all of these have, have a foundational purpose, apostolic work that is, that's now complete. And the authority given to the church now is the written word of God. It's, it is the authority that has already been established. What we see here with Paul, well, it's an extension from Jesus. Remember the woman in Mark 5 who had been bleeding for 12 years? She heard about Jesus and she comes up behind him in a crowd thinking, if I just touch his garment, I will be made well. And she was. And then we see an extension of this authority with Peter in Acts 5. Where people are they're bringing out the sick on, on mats, putting them in, in the street so that when Peter comes by and his shadow falls upon them, they would be healed. And they were. What we see with Peter... And now Paul is the communication of Jesus' authority in their ministries. Jesus showed who he was through healing the sick and casting out demons. And he continued to do this through his apostles for these foundational purposes. And their unique and foundational ministry, their, this authority to complete the word of God, to establish Christ's church. It had a purpose. The signs and wonders had a purpose. And it wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme like we see today. Like the televangelists of our day. In fact, the televangelists of our day, they have more in common with the itinerant Jewish exorcists, don't they? They invoke the name of Jesus like a trick. For their own selfish and greedy purposes and not for the kingdom of God. And like these, like these exorcists who get beat up and run away exposed and embarrassed, so too we see many of these false teachers in our day being exposed and embarrassed. And instead of looking to the to the next con man to come along, giving the same kind of promises for, for name it and claim it, healing and wealth. It'd be nice, and we should pray that people would... That's wrong. They would have a similar fear, even, that Jesus' name should be exalted. It would cause them to turn from any spiritual compromise no matter the cost. That's what we see going on here. These people, these people actually gathered very valuable magic books, scrolls, and burned them. Some say that the value of these books in our day would have been around $6 million. It's not just deciding to burn your rock CDs. 30 years ago, you're like, oh, it's a big deal. The treasure of Christ was obviously much more valuable to them. I doubt many of you have this kind of, this kind of spiritual conflict. It's hard to think of uh, comparisons in our day. Um, something that's really obvious. 
you know, we hear about similar things, talking with Pastor Sam or, or Ricardo, missionaries in Africa and Colombia. We hear about syncretism that exists, people mixing, people who are Christians and yet witch doctors, dealing with the occult. Mixing that with Christianity. It seems so obvious to us, right? We, we would never do such a thing. But, but something that seems to be... Okay, so, I don't know, here's something that came to mind. There's a lot of things, I'm sure. But something that, that, that came to mind is becoming really uh, growing more and more over the years in popularity, even among Christians, is this idea of manifesting. You know about that? Manifesting. To many of us, it, you know, it just sounds like it's the same old, you know, positive thinking, uh, power of words. And there's truth to that. You know, we want to be positive. The words that we speak have an impact on, the, on emotions and the people around us. But in reality, this manifesting, it's pagan. It's actually pagan. And we shouldn't be mixing our faith with any pagan spiritual practices. And another angle on this is, well, it's just arrogant, isn't it? It's just arrogant to think that you can speak something into existence. God's word reminds us that we're, we're just missed. We don't, know what to, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And here we are, people manifesting. Come on. So instead of saying, I will do this or I will do that, we should... Instead, say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. That's what's biblical. So it's not only pagan, but it's unbiblically arrogant to think that you can manifest your desires into reality. So if, if any of you are doing this, I have two words for you. They come from my, my favorite TV counselor, Bob Newhart. You know those words? I don't even have to say it, do I? Stop it. So the keys to my counseling, if you come to me for counseling, that's, that's, stop it. Recently, I think God, I think, I mean, some things you just, you see and you think, oh, this is just, this is delicious. Thank you, Lord, for doing this. Recently, I think God ordained for a very public sports figure. To basically be mastered and overpowered because of such manifestation talk. He didn't run away naked, but he was injured. And probably, hopefully, embarrassed by his boastful talk of manifesting. I don't know if you saw this, if you're a football fan. A few weeks ago, this was a hilarious interview. A few weeks ago, tennis legend John McEnroe interviewed the superstar quarterback, former superstar quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, who left to play for the New York Jets. Big deal. All the Jet fans were just going crazy. We got Aaron Rodgers. We're going to win it all. McEnroe kept describing himself. It was hilarious. I'm a long-suffering Jets fan. I'm a long-suffering Jets fan. And the hype over Aaron Rodgers playing for the Jets is just is enormous. And this was prior to the very first, very first game of the season, just a few weeks ago. As a long-suffering Jets fan, McEnroe begins with some, you know, some negative concerns. Well, what if it doesn't work out? And Rogers interrupts him, saying, no, 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 no. Speak what you want into existence, because that's what I'm going to do. Why not speak that into existence? When I step on the field, I expect greatness for myself. And my teammates, I expect greatness of them. And I believe in the power, he said this. This is a quote. I believe in the power of manifestation. The desires of your heart into reality. Oh, he was so, it was an interesting interview. A few hours later in the day, four plays into his first start for the New York Jets, Aaron Rodgers has a season-ending injury. <laughs> I just laughed. Okay, I don't wish harm on anyone. I don't wish for people to get hurt. Don't misunderstand me. If you're a Jets fan, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, 
But it sure felt like God had, had something to say about the power of manifesting. It's a spiritual conflict. And there are many others that come our way. And what the apostles establish is the authority of God's complete and ever-sufficient word. His word that tells us about the treasure of Jesus. That he's such a great treasure. He's such a great treasure. We should be willing to, to burn anything that tries to take the place that only he deserves in our lives. So Luke, he gives us these scenes. And really the point of them all is summarized in verse 20. That the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was conflict in knowledge. A misunderstanding related to the fulfilled promise of God. And we need to be like Paul in that that we know God's word and have conversations with people and, and lead them into a deeper knowledge and love for the Lord. There was a conflict involving hard hearts. And like Paul, we should be creative in our strategies for sharing the gospel. And if the stats are true, it may be as simple as asking someone to come to our church. They may only need a nudge to come. Or it may be through hospitality. But certainly a good emphasis is in developing strong relationships. And lastly, there was a spiritual conflict. There should be no compromise here. No patience for con men. And no involvement with any kind of pagan practices. Instead, instead we need to realize that Jesus, he is that treasure in the field. He's worth sacrificing all that we have in order to have him. Let's pray. Our great and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for your glorious grace. The Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to your glory God, in the face of Jesus Christ, that he has indwelt all who believe, sealing us with a guarantee of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that in seeing Jesus, we see the Father, that your spirit helps us and teaches us and convicts us of sin. Lord, in thinking through these conflicts in your word, help us to better know your word. Help us to be bold to be involved with people, to invite them to come to church, to invite them into our homes so that they might know you. And Lord, give us discernment. Keep us from distraction, from adding anything that conflicts with the faith you have called us to. Thank you for giving us all that we need in your spirit, your church, and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.